Hello, and welcome to On Being a Black Man. I'm your host, Lawrence Jones. And I'm your co-host, Todd Jones. And we're here to discuss, celebrate, and laugh a little while doing a deep dive into the narratives of black men navigating life in the 21st century. We'll explore impactful influences, life lessons, media representation, and presentation against the landscape of American culture in an era of Black Lives Matter. Welcome back to On Being a Black Man. I'm your host, Lawrence Jones. I am the co-host, Todd Jones. Hey, and we are back doing what we do, breaking down the experience of being African-American males in the 21st century. We've been gone for a little minute. If you've been following, we thank you so much for riding with us. Uh, we launched our first episode on May 1st, and we are sitting down now to wrap up our summer we both had very interesting summer breaks uh me and my first time as an educator enjoying those t that time off and uh Taj had his own uh summertime uh, doing what he does and we'll talk about some of that in his lane as well so i'm ready to get into it Taj, how hmm. was your summer uh it was uneventful honestly i didn't really do much it's ever since I graduated, every day has been summer, so I don't know. <laughs> so I it's to, always summer, yeah. It's always summer. Once you graduate, it's always summer. Ah, so I've just been you know working. Uh, had my first, as you know, my first uh comedy competition. Let's talk about that. Um, last week, uh, yeah, it was a nice experience. Uh, I did not win, but that's okay. <laughs> you a winner on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't go to the second round, but it's all right. Uh, there was a lot of funny people out there uh, performing at night. It was about I think eleven or thirteen. It was supposed to be thirteen. Two people didn't show up, mm -hmm. um, so it was eleven of us, and the top three would go on to the next round. Um, but yeah, the three that they chose were, were hilarious. Honestly, had me um, laughing all night. So it was a cool experience, though. I, I met a lot of comics out there. Some. Uh, I guess professional ones. Some of them have the the two headliners of the show. Mm -hmm. um, after the competition, they would perform or whatever. Uh, those two have been on TV. One had his first uh, comedy album came out a couple months ago, and then the other one was on Jimmy Fallon, which is pretty cool. Oh, nice! And you yeah. remember any names? One, the uh, I didn't talk to the. Jimmy Fallon guy, but the first performer, uh, Caleb, I forgot his last name, but okay. yeah, we were talking on like, um, majority of the nights. Pretty nice, nice people. 
Nice people. Yeah. So you're doing that talking thing with uh, new people. How's that going for you? <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, uh, it's very tough for me to, to open, <laughs> yeah. up, open up. I did not start this conversation. That's okay. How, yeah. So, um, but no, it was cool. You know, it's just weird for me to start. Even when I'm on stage, like the first thing that comes out of my mouth is very hard to to get to get out. Mm. But I know I have to do it. And it, but the first thing I say always sounds just so stupid or whatever. So it's, I just go, I'm like, hey, how y'all doing? I don't like it's just just to say something <laughs> because you know they have they have your, they have them like applaud while you come up stage, but the applaud always ends before you get to before you're ready. Game. So yeah. it's just quiet until you <laughs> grab the mic. So it's awkward. I tell you what you do. Right when you get the applause and you're on stage and you turn around with the mic, you just say, "God bless and good night." Like that that would be much better. And then it's already <laughs> over. <laughs> He's like, "Before you go, boom, mm-hmm. let me tell you a story." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just jump right into it that way. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry you didn't have, uh, you know, as much of a eventful summer as mm-hmm. as your dad. I mean, you know. Because I rock. Yeah, you've been doing uh, a lot. Yeah, I've been doing a lot. I have been, as people say, living the dream. Um, from starting a new career in education to perfecting, in as much as possible, my uh, art and photography. I have been traveling to photograph, meeting new people, capturing amazing images in these places. Uh, up to date, we've hit... Uh, Winston, Salem, North Carolina, Durham, North Carolina. Although we are close in proximity to Raleigh, I have not photographed in Raleigh yet. And so that's on my to-do list Mm -hmm. as well as Charlotte. It was my intent to shoot in Charlotte uh, just this past weekend while I was attending the Van Gogh uh, immersive expo or exhibition in, in, in Charlotte there in the Queen City but it was hot <laughs> and my ticket time was for one o'clock and the brother was just not trying to walk the streets in that one two o'clock heat not to mention the light is not favorable really for great photography at that time so I was like yeah Charlotte I'll come back so Charlotte I owe you one um, so yeah but that was the thing but on the top of my list my visit this summer had to be my trip to New Orleans. If you're from New Orleans and you're listening, thank you. Thank you for what you do. I love the culture. I had all the food that I could could eat <laughs> every day. My diet went right out the window. Every pound that I lost prior to this trip. What you what you eat? All of it. Eat? So one of my uh so the first dish that I ordered uh came from a restaurant, uh Gabrielle's. Mm. Shout out to Gabrielle's. That's one. Uh, yeah, Gabrielle's, it's a uh, traditional, uh, should I say, authentic New Orleans style Cajun menu. I had, uh, as, a, as an appetizer, I had the gumbo. And thankfully, because I can't do shellfish, we have that in common. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to partake in the chicken with sausage and whatever else was in it. Um, as a soup, it was amazing. Mm. I absolutely loved it. I never had gumbo. Yeah, New Orleans owes me nothing on that trip. <laughs> I got all the food, all the drinks. 
there are so many people, um, creatives are my friends. Like, even if I don't know who they are, uh, I didn't introduce myself to anyone. I just watched the people doing what they do. I saw live artists who create themselves as sculpture. Um, I saw people who danced. I saw young kids, young boys and young girls as drummers. I saw performers, dancers on the side of the streets uh, and seemingly makeshift tap shoes, but they were dancing and giving you everything that they had to give. So we were able to just kind of, you know, observe that experience, photograph it. Um, I tried not to be in the way, but it was necessary sometimes to kind of get in front of other people just to capture the perfect shot mm -hmm. and uh, we accomplished that one of my favorites was this elderly gentleman who I'm not really sure what to call this this might be a bit of a balancing act if you will uh, there was no high wires involved but he was definitely uh, climbing a ladder in the middle of the street while holding this ladder with one arm he was balancing another piece of wood in the other arm kind of straddled across his back and he was climbing and this man was doing this in the midst of the street uh without any like external support what okay what couple questions was he was this his job or was he just some random dude who just decided to i'm gonna i'm gonna show my talent out here today I mean, that's the culture of, of New Orleans Bourbon Street. These are random people so who, weird. <laughs> who provide like, yeah, it's like somebody who discovers that they can shoot, you know, a frozen pea from their nose a thousand yards. It's like, one, how do you know you could do this? Mm -hmm. And two, will people come and watch? And um, well, fortunately for this brother, people stand around and watch. Yeah, Why they're, not, they're not coming to watch though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you kind of see it along the way. You're in the streets. So, yeah, yeah. The People Bourbon Street experience is is a journey. It is a very long street, and you're just kind of like a passerby mm. of all of this culture and experience. And what's more importantly, I thought it was nice to see, you know, some of us. I mean, there were a lot of European. Mm. people you know in the streets but they are also just you know so in, in immersed in the culture of New Orleans I will say this there's probably not another city uh, like New Orleans I was really um, I was really impressed and I was entertained um, and I was educated as well so I had an opportunity to track one of my favorite shows the originals um, they are no longer running on live television, but there are five seasons. If you have not watched the originals, the original Vampire and Werewolf and Witch family, uh, the Michelsons, uh, they are two. Uh, well, they are my favorite family, you know, drama to watch on uh, Netflix right now. And they probably watched that show about three or four times all the way through. That's ridiculous. It only takes one episode. <laughs> it is not. It is I dedication. I haven't seen Breaking Bad that much. It's, it's a love for the love story. Breaking Bad. Yeah, it's, you know, and you know I'm, I'm very family oriented, right? Mm. We, we, we talked about this. And this journey with this family is all about their fight and their struggle for family. While they, you know, rip a few heads off, tear out a few throats, cast a few spells... Do you like it more than uh, like Charmed or Angel? 
Because uh, when I was younger, you used to watch those. Yeah, I used to watch those. Yeah, I love Charmed. Always mm-hmm. going to be a Charmed fan. Um, not in love with the second generation of Charmed. I mean, that was my next question. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it, but yeah, they. I understand what they're trying to do. You know, they're bringing women of color, diversity. They've upped the game on the special effects, but there was just a chemistry that was created uh, with actors uh, Holly Marie Combs. Um, Shannon Doherty, Alyssa Milano, mm-hmm. and uh, Rose McGowan. You just cannot, you can't just grab people and say, hey, let's just redo this. You know what I mean? That is a classic dynamic. Even though Shannon Doherty departed the show and then Rose McGowan stepped in, she filled an amazing big pair of shoes on that show. So I would have to say, um, I don't see them as rivals. So mm-hmm. there's no competition. I love them both. And, you know, I've never missed an episode of Charmed. I'm, it only takes one, you know, glimpse of an episode. And I know exactly what I'm watching. I know exactly what spells are being cast. I know who the evil demon witch, <laughs> harpy. <laughs> I know exactly what's going on because I've followed it that much. So mm-hmm. I'm... I'm big enough in my heart and in my mind and through media love that I can enjoy them both without saying one of you must go. I pray that never happens. That's good. Yeah. But I did notice that uh, WB is not running Charmed, the original cast, on Netflix and that troubles me. So if you're listening, stop it. (laughs) Bring bring back the Sisters 3, the OGs. We want that. But let's continue on. So I'll tell you more about like New Orleans. Uh, amazing images, food and drinks. I would love to take you there. You know, I mm. think that'd be a great father-son trip for us. Mm. Yeah, I heard you can uh, hire a, like a your own personal band out there. You can. Like, you can I think they're the, the, the Jaywalkers. Yeah, that's what it's called. Go down to the police station and be like, "Yeah, I want a, I want a band." Mm-hmm. And you're like, "All right." Yeah, <laughs> and they just they, follow you. Too. Yeah, they will. They will march and dance with you down the street. I have some that's images. Of, uh, <laughs> so I think funny. the couple was announcing their engagement or either mm-hmm. the wedding, and they just came down the street dancing and music and yeah, that's, yeah. That's and people so gather funny. around. It's very supportive. It is the epitome of community. Yeah, yeah. Like you gotta love it. So after New Orleans, as you know, I came home for like a day (laughs) (laughs) and then I was back into the wind Mm. on my way to what I would probably call my most historical uh, trip where I learned so much. And uh, this is Alabama, specifically Selma, Alabama. Um, Are you familiar with the relevance of Selma? Not too much. Not too much. I was probably younger than you the first time I heard of Selma, Alabama. And what resonates uh, for me is the events that took place on March 7th, 1965, um, also known as the Bloody Sunday. And this was the event which um, kicked off the a portion of the civil rights period where African Americans were marching literally for the right to vote. This was a protest, peaceful protest uh, from the from the black perspective, which was met with all of the hate and all of the aggression of white citizens and reinforced by our legal system. And by that, I mean our police, 
our government and uh, the local jails. Um, Selma still embodies and fortifies that level of race uh, tension, if you will. Much of the city looked like it did in the 60s. It is now deemed a historical district, but the bridge and the buildings surrounding it were all literally... I mean, I can look at an old image and just turn to my left and right and identify all of those buildings. Um, We live in a place now where uh, generally our legal system does not support that level of racism and hatred. While I say that, I do acknowledge that there is systemic racism still in our country. Do you agree? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's just probably going to be like that journey. The majority population still has things set up. Uh, in a way that the first consideration made for commerce, commerce, um, entertainment, uh, technology is often with the white man or white woman in, in mind. And the idea of Johnson & Johnson's Band-Aid is a very relevant, you know, to date uh, example of that where we now have a band-aid which is now of darker skin so we all don't have to walk around with that light pigmented band-aid is it weird i never even like never thought about a it second huh? like i was like yeah it's a band-aid I, I didn't necessarily need a darker band-aid like it's that was fine just the regular band-aid when it came out with it i'm like oh okay it's nice, yeah. I guess. But like, I mean, think about it this way: Tampax tampons, right? Mm. Lady product. They don't need all the options available for that time of the month, but mm. it's just nice to have in case you got a heavy flow. Yeah. You know, you got something like a super. Mm. Who knew, right? And Whatever until they had the option, it was like, oh well, you know, it does what it does. But now you have an opportunity to be represented, and that's just a basic level, like. You go to the section of bandages and whatnot, and you say, hey, now I can camouflage my wounds, you know, like everybody else. It's simple. It's a small victory, but it's still, mm-hmm. it's still victory. So in this journey of photography uh, in Selma, uh, my main focus was truly the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And it is an amazing sight to see even now. Um, to look at it up close, I will say this. When you see it at either end up close, it is impossible not to recall all of the horrific images of blacks being beaten and shot while trying to get across this bridge. So I would say to look at it up close, it was painful. Mm -hmm. Um, In order to find the beauty in this structure, which joins one side of this city uh, to the other, and this is a bridge which connects the city or town of Selma to the largest city, Montgomery, on Highway 80, uh, roughly 54 miles, I had to take a step back and I had to shoot this bridge from side streets, which gave me a view that allowed me to actually take in the beauty of the structure in itself 
without the ugliness attached to it that I saw up close. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as a photographer, I loved it. Um, as a black man, I was troubled. <laughs> I was troubled to read the memorials um, that are still in place. But I'm grateful that people thought to memorialize and to celebrate uh, the lives who were integral to the success of that march for the right to vote. 54 miles is a long walk. And that was the intent, was to depart from Selma to Montgomery. You would think normally, you know, people gathering for a walk would not be problematic. Mm -hmm. But in 1960s, 1965, it was very problematic. There were people, uh, the powers that be, if you will, who were not happy about the gathering. One of the people who inspired me to do what I do now as a photographer uh, was present in that time, and that is Moneta Sleet Jr. He was a photojournalist who was so deeply embedded. Most of the images that we see with Dr. King during his time in 1965 up until his death in 1968 were made possible because of the images photographed by Moneta Sleet Jr. And so... Um, it's with that inspiration that I just hit the road and said I'm going to go to a city and photograph the people and photograph and photo document, you know, the surrounding areas. And while it doesn't pay now, it, it may one day. I don't know. I don't care necessarily about the money uh, as much as I do that I'm experiencing it and that I'm able to capture some beautiful images. Sounds a little lame, maybe, but, you know, no, it's, it's, it's the mind of the creative. Yeah, that's your uh, your passion at the moment. Yeah. So it's like, don't get paid for it, so what? Doesn't matter. Have you gotten any positive feedback on it? I've gotten amazing positive feedback. I was recently offered an opportunity to create my own collection mm. and uh, put it on display at a venue in the Atlanta, Georgia area. I accepted the invitation, so I'll be... Um, curating my own work and preparing it to be displayed uh, I'm hoping that I can get that date solidified sometime in the mid to late September to mid October and I think that would be awesome um, I've never done anything like this and I've already been asked like hey are you selling this image I like to buy a print so just things like that you know just makes me smile right yeah. exposure yeah exposure is good uh, so that takes us, man, um, to some of the people who were involved. And I never thought about this, you know, just as an American, as a black man, like what it meant to be a part of that crowd of people trying to cross that bridge out of Selma into Montgomery and being met with all of the police force against you. Um, people were beaten and, and, and killed en route. You know, at the start, midway or whatever, it was just, it was an ugly day. Hence the name Bloody Sunday. One of the people, a part of that march, was Congressman uh, John Lewis. John Lewis is also a member of the uh, Sigma uh, fraternity. And I was able to reach out to a friend of mine, Mr. Kent Alford. Uh, and Kent 
and John had a personal relationship through their organization. Uh, he is known for his famous line, get into some good trouble. And uh, having been there now to Selma, uh, I just felt like this would be a great opportunity to meet and, and hear from this brother. So here in a little bit, we will be hearing from a very own uh, Kent Alfred, who was a man of many hats. This is one of the busiest brothers I know. So I considered it a blessing to be able to catch him uh, at the time. So let's get ready to uh, bring in Kent. Are we ready? We ready. All right, let's do that. Mr. Kent Alfred. Um, and we are going to be diving into, into some very interesting topics on this episode. Kent is a man, as they say, of many hats. So I want you guys to sit back, uh, share with a friend, right? Immediately go ahead and start sending this out to some of your coworkers and your family. Uh, because uh, this brother is as busy as busy is busy. <laughs> so, uh, welcome, Kent. Thank you, man. I appreciate you having me today. Awesome. Thank you for uh, agreeing to sit down with us. Um, you are currently living in the DMV area, correct? Yes. Uh, I live in a town called Bowie, Maryland. Uh, Bowie, Maryland. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. Kent, give us a little bit of uh, of the background about Kent. How did how did we get here? Take us back. Wow, um, you know I, I appreciate having the opportunity um, to talk about myself, Lawrence. Uh, I I normally don't uh, <laughs> try to stay humble pie, but I, I'll I'll kind of share with you where I began and why it's so important to where I am now. Um, originally, I was actually born in, in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, mother was single mom. Uh, we uh, was there for several years until she uh, remarried um, and and her husband, uh, my stepfather, we actually moved to North Carolina. So somewhere between ages of eight, and nine, um, I was in North, North Carolina, a town called Clinton, North Carolina. I'm not too far from Fayetteville. And um, I grew up there and then we moved to Kinston, North Carolina, um, another town about an hour away. And um, that's where I completed, you know, my high school, middle school and high school studies, um, kind of understanding, you know, the educational system in North Carolina at that time, Lawrence. Um, it was like a, a two tier system. Mm -hmm. um, people who were academically, uh, I guess, identified, followed a certain track and people who um, had, I guess, what they call vocational skills, followed another track. I was somewhere in between those two tracks, but somewhere between uh, middle school, high school, they identified me on that college track. So here I am, you know, never um, had any generational influences to go to college. There was, uh, my parents were Jehovah's Witnesses. And um, at that time, Jehovah's Witnesses really um, didn't look at college as a thing to do. Um, and I didn't have any influences outside of my family that I remember or saw um, in school. So in this college track, the only thing I knew how to do was take tests and talk about going to college. And for me, that was such a, a dream that like, I had never thought, you know, I knew I would do it, but I never it was something that it was a, like a dream, like I couldn't touch it. Right. So, uh, yeah, I, I did my 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 best there. And um, 
graduated from high school, um, did, did fairly decent, um, took some pretty tough science and math courses. Um, and when I finished, Lawrence, I those um, lessons that I learned from the high schools prepared me for um, college. And here right. I am, a, a Jehovah's Witness, <laughs> you know, <laughs> bucking some generational um, no-nos and then having to be in a campus. I didn't know what I was going to do, man. I was just like, I was just glad to be here. I didn't have any focus. I didn't have any mentors. And I didn't know what I was doing. So mm -hmm. I, I'll stop there if you want me to continue. But there, there I was on the college campus of Coppin State a university in Baltimore with full scholarship. Oh, wow. Full scholarship. Yes. Yeah. So you, when you said you did decent in high school, you were being modest. Um, well, I, I made the honor roll. You know, I, I took the, what they call it. I was the first African-American um, along with another young lady, Nicole Washington. We took um, advanced placement classes in um, the, the high school. I went to high school. It was called North Lenore high school in uh, Lenore County, North Carolina. Um, and at that time they were, they were modeling these, this thing called AP, you know, where everybody's taking advanced placement now, but when we took it, we were like, wow, you know, we're in the top class and we're going to really be college prep. And I did, yeah. I did. Yeah. And I was, you know, it really prepared me for, it helped me how to write better. Lawrence, it helped me to kind of focus my thoughts and put them on paper and then make sense and critically think. And I think that probably that background really helped me do well in school when I got in college. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about yeah. uh, your background a little bit. So um, you were born in what generation? What year are you? Um, I'm a, I'm an early 70s baby. So I'm a Generation Xer, sir. <laughs> generation Xer. Yeah, that 70s period is very unique. We are coming right out of the 60s, the 65 through 68 was a very pivotal point in history for a lot of African-Americans, uh, well, for African-Americans in general, but specifically for those who were, you know, adults, young adults in that time, there was a lot going on uh, mm -hmm. in America. So uh, being that early 70s, do you have any memories of some of the inequalities and injustices that 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 we were facing uh, as African American males, do you have mm -hmm. any any thoughts that come to mind, like how things changed from then and what they look like now? Well, I do remember the the social changes that were that was happening. Um, that was like an era of like black power. Um, uh, we heard a lot about, you know, I remember being a young, young kid. I remember Roots was on or Roots that came out. Right. And, oh, my God. It was transformation. My my parents were, again, Jehovah's Witnesses. They would rush me from the Kingdom Hall uh, in, the after, in the evening and go home to see the Roots. And it was powerful. We didn't never we never saw images of uh, slavery that was so uh, vivid. And it was fascinating to see that this is what we went through as a people and Roots was a galvanizing um, television show. Uh, but in the midst of all of that, however, I still do remember the conversations of black inequality, uh, black men not being successful. Definitely um, my arrow did not, I, I remember 
Lawrence, as a child, um, hearing and seeing that inequality for which I was about to be immersed in myself um, as I got older in the journey. So, yes, I do. I remember that. Yeah. What can you how do you when you look back between your your relationship, you and your dad, you mentioned Jehovah Witness and, you know, religion um, for African-American families is a very integral part of, of who we are. You know, it is established throughout communities. Um, what was the relationship like between you and your father uh, growing up? Do you have siblings, uh, other brothers? Uh, right. How did that look? Yeah, what was that dynamic like at home, you know, during those 70s periods? So, um, you know, my mom was a single mom, as I mentioned before. Um, you know, I was um, my my uh, birth father um, lived in another, lived in Baltimore, lived in a different state. So, I was really um, detached from him. I, I kind of fit the profile you hear a, a lot, um, particularly when my mother was a single mom. She was a single mom until I was six. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have um, a father influence. When I got a father influence, and of course my mom married, um, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll be as um, polite with this as I can. Um, it was a, a tumultuous relationship. Um, and it was born out of, you know, obviously um, when you're not formally educated in terms of how to raise a child, how to integrate a stepchild on a given day, having a step relationship is tough. But then yeah. when you got the thing that you are in a, a, a religion that has a level of structure that's probably unprecedented, and then you have um, other uh, traumatic things that you haven't healed from, I'm speaking to the, the stepfather, um, and you carry that into trying to raise a son and and be a husband, and I'm just putting myself in his shoes. Um, I don't think that that journey um, it it went well. Uh, mm -hmm. It went well for both for for both of us. Um, and I've had to do my work um, in my life to kind of forgive myself uh, for some of the feelings I carried over about that. And um, yeah, it was tough, Lawrence. And just to, to be quite you know honest with you. Um, there was a lot of physical abuse, mental abuse. Um, and in my head, you know, the only thing that could save me was going to school, you know, so school was like the Mecca of me being free from whatever was happening in my house. And, um, I would use that to say, you know, it, almost like a fantasy land. Like I'm, I'm going to get out of here one day. I'm going to leave North Carolina, Lawrence. I'm going to go to college. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I wanted to grow up so badly, man. I just wanted to be an adult. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so you know, that, that helped me to kind of, um, kind of deal with the reality. I was in a very abusive, physical, mental relationship. Uh, you know, at that time. And so, but, but survivor. You know, it, it those yeah. scars transform me. Um, to um understand, you know, I understand pain, both physical and mental. But I also understand that you, you can be resilient and you can bounce back and you can be better than the moment. Yeah, you touched on that. You hit a key word and you said, I, I did my work. Um, and I thought that was very in insightful. Um, a lot of us grow up um, either with or without, you know, a father, father figure or even, you know, a positive 
a relationship, healthy relationship with the, you know, with the male figure in the home. Um, and it can often manifest the results of that will manifest itself throughout the rest of our lives, whether it be, you know, through in the school behavior um, and, and the way we establish or not establish relationships, you know, is directly connected to those, those forming years as, as children, uh, you know, Mm-hmm. in those relationships with our parents and you're yep. absolutely right you know you know it's even more difficult being a step parent yeah. right because you don't have that biological bond and so if you don't establish that uh that person-to-person respect and you know trust and you know foundation first it can be really problematic uh but mm-hmm. you are absolutely right resiliency is a thing that can, you know, take a child from, you know, a bad experience or a ne- or negative experience in the childhood and then, you know, arrive at where you are now uh, because, and we're going to get to this too, and I'm so excited to be able to have this particular narrative uh, being shared today because you, you accomplished so much uh, in yeah. your, in your high school years as you were getting, you know, you're getting older, you're in North Carolina, uh, you know, you have a lot of small town influences, you know, even mm-hmm. though you were born in, in the, I, I would call it the North Baltimore. Baltimore has a very different <laughs> culture than yes. a Kinston and a Clinton, North Carolina. Uh, right. <laughs> how do you balance or, you know, do, are there some key takeaways from having those small town uh, influences in your life that show up? Yeah, um, that's a good point. I, I want to just get back and back up for one, one second. One, one key thing I want to share um, in this high school uh, journey where I, I started Lawrence. Um, and I didn't mention this, but I, I mentioned this because the work that I do now is, is crucial. Um, mm-hmm. My relationship, you mentioned the relationship I had with my uh, parents. Um, it took me to a very dark place when um, I was a, a teenager um, to the point where, um, and I'll, I'll share this uh, openly, I um, attempted suicide. Uh-huh. Um, and this was a moment of, you know, you hear people sometimes do it for attention, sometimes do it for, you know, trying to get someone to say, hey, I need help. My moment of, of suicidal attempt was because I wanted to go. It was that it was so horrific and the abuse. Um, and it was in my, my going into my senior year of, of high school. And I remember um, the, the place I was going to do it, it was a tree. And I got in, you know, tied and did the, did the work necessary to complete the suicide act. And um, it did, didn't happen for some reason, the uh, equipment didn't work. And I remember hitting the ground and I remember something saying, just hold on. Mm-hmm. I don't know where that came from because I, when you preparing to, to leave this, this planet in the way I'm, in my mind, and now I understand with the hundreds and thousands of patients I work with, it's, it's almost like a euphoria, like you're ready to go, you're ready to do it. But when I didn't and I failed at it, and that power came from something that I didn't have, Lawrence. And it was like, Kent, you have got, you just hold on. Mm-hmm. And I did. And 
and that that moment was defining for me. And every time I go to North Carolina, I don't, you know, you share this with many people. A couple of my intimate uh, family members know I visit that that tree for which I think my life began because that that moment in time, I'm not supposed to be here, Lawrence. I'm not supposed to be having this conversation with you in the audience. I'm not supposed to be here. And yet I, it failed. And, and here I am. And I'm, I'm thankful and grateful and honored to kind of keep this journey going because it's, it's, it's beyond me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you, I would say, were unsuccessful uh, in that attempt because um, in the time that I've known you, I know you to be uh, someone who cares for others and you want to see people win genuinely, you know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you. I used to teach suicide prevention mm. uh, to our young Marines when I was in the Marine Corps. And that was one of the um, required trainings, you know, for our Marines, for, um, for our young leaders. And I don't know that in the civilian world, uh, these young men and women who are growing up have access to those resources Mm-hmm. you know, about working through some of those things that would uh, result in or may result in a permanent solution to a temporary, you know, problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm glad that that one that you're here. And mm-hmm. I would say that that the, does that situation for you is that does that is that what has driven you? Yeah, in your current career field, absolutely. Um, because you know, I, I, I it, it's so funny because it's you have images in your head that sometimes are unclear and and cloudy. This image that I have is 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 just as vivid as any image I can have, like that happened yesterday. Uh-huh. And and I I so remember my life ending my life ended mentally because when you mentally prepare to do something at the level for which I prepared um it it I was ready I was ready I was prepared and I wanted to go but when I came and failed from that the energy I got to to propel me to to hold on and I was going to be okay it defined my 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 walk like I I don't I don't know who who it was after that um, emerged, but it wasn't the same person, Lawrence. Cause I was I was beaten, I was tired, I was physically and mentally ready. And when I got back up, that energy carried me um, across high school and then beyond other things. So I, I honestly attribute that moment that um, that did not occur as what defined what, why I am and uh, mental health. Um, it, I, I have the degrees and I have the you know jobs, but I have the the, the, uh, the the life experience of understanding what when people are extremely depressed and what happens to the mind and what happens when the person is truly preparing for the ultimate moment, the end stage of depression, um, and being able to have that empathic um, anchor supports me in understanding people and hopefully being a, a, a mom of Gilead and say helping people to heal. Yeah. Yeah, that experience is say nothing no, nothing like it. Um some people say it's a good teacher, right? But mm-hmm. when you can connect with someone, you know, with regards to suicide, suicide ideations, 
we typically hear the words be strong or, you know, a strong black man, right? Um, we might be even encouraged to endure, you know, the abuses mm-hmm. at any level rather than to seek an exodus or even a potentially a resource to get out of that situation. Um, mm-hmm. As a healthcare professional, um, what advice would you give to uh, another brother, another young man who might be kind of in the shadow of that misconception, you know, be strong? Mm-hmm. I, you know what I, I say? And that's a, I love this. Thank you, uh, Lawrence, for giving me the opportunity to talk through this. Um, I, you know, as a nurse and nurse therapist and running um, one of the biggest uh behavioral health uh, practices in in the capital region um, area, I often sit, because I see Black men in this level. I see them when the police are bringing them their emergency petition, they have the handcuffs on. Something happened before that, when they they got to the hospital, they had some horrific thing. It could have been a blow up, a physical fight, or they could have had a, a mental decompensation. And I always but I connect to them and I I don't get a chance to do that often because I'm an administrator. But when I do Lawrence, I always say to them, it's okay not to be okay. Yeah. Because, you know, when we say be strong, what does that really mean? You know, who's going to give me the strength to be strong? Who's going to give me the pillar? Who's going to give me, you know, how do I do this? And I think right now I I need you just to understand where you are. Where are you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and if you're at the lowest point, you know, the good news in that is that it can only get better. Right. But you have to know where you are because maybe that being strong statement could be a, a pseudo attempt to make a connection that really doesn't exist. You have got yeah. to be in and wallow in the moment. What brought you here to this hospital where you are now being considered for psychiatric um, hospitalization? What what happened? What was the trauma that drove you to such a um, precipitous moment? Yeah. And then understanding that trauma, you know, who did what? When did it happen? How did you feel? And that's where you really need an experienced clinician to really guide a person to those dark places. Because right. you, you may not be strong enough to do it on your own. And that simple word isn't going to, you know, elicit some superhuman strength from inside you this is where you need people this is where you need reflection this is where you do your work and it's painful the work is painful because nobody wants to go back to the trauma that they think they ran from um so yeah that's what i'd say to him lawrence um it's okay not to be okay it's It's interesting that you use that phrase uh because that was a a uh tool or a piece of the phrasing that was given to me uh in the marine corps we would you know start to push that uh to our young marines you know it's okay not to be okay and i remember the first time hearing that i was like what (laughs) (laughs) right right. Right? um because you've grown up you know many I i think this may be true uh 
at least it's represented this way. Um, and I've seen this in some of uh, the young brothers that, that I've known as I've grown up. We grow up under the idea, especially if there's no father in the home, that at least the eldest male in the house has to be the man of the house. He has to fill that role. But they are a child, right? Right. Uh, and, and, and when you look at them, you see child, but emotionally, they carry the weight of those words, right? Um, right, right. I remember there was a time and it was like, you know, you don't cry or, you know, you don't, you don't do this or, or you don't do that or you make sure that this. And let's be honest. What is it that a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old, what can he provide to a household other than dishes, bedroom <laughs> cleaning, cutting the yard? <laughs> right, right. right. But, right. but we hear that, you know, we hear that phrasing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know, if dad is gone, you know, you got to be the man in the house. One of the things mm -hmm. that we have in common is you mentioned a single mom, you know. I am a product of a single mother as mm -hmm. well. Uh, but I had other male influences around me, my mother's brothers, mm -hmm. uh, my dad's brothers, my grandparents' brothers. Mm. Uh, you know, both of my grandfathers had, you know, a nice collection of siblings as well who helped to contribute that. But I think that there is a stigma, you know, if you will, mm -hmm. attached to that, to that being strong. Uh, yeah. And as a result of it, you know, you can grow up if you don't do that work that you mentioned earlier. Uh, you arrive at adulthood with quite a few mental health issues that, right. you know, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, you could you could really benefit from mm -hmm. some time, you know, with the professional to kind of help you navigate through, What's uh, going on? you know, yeah, how, you know, why you're making decisions the way that you are. Uh, mm -hmm the root of the thing, uh, I remember realizing myself that I was dealing with the symptoms, mm. you know, and not the problem before right. I, I went to therapy some years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was probably one of the best things for me. It, it allowed me to kind of own my thoughts and actually separate what I really felt from what I was just carrying out because that's what was done. Wow. That's, I, I commend you on that, Lawrence, because, you know, therapy is one of those kind of things. Um, um, again, I, I do these these barbershop uh, forums, and, and I don't know you want to talk about that just yet, but yeah, when let's I go into that, because I've seen okay. some of those yeah. on, on YouTube, and I've actually shared some of those. Okay. Go. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. Um, the, the barbershop, you know, for me, you know, I'm this Mr. Man, Mr. Administrator, behavioral health uh, guy. But what brought me there <laughs> was my ability to connect to people. And the and what I know best, connecting to people, barbershops and beauty salons are very intimate moments for African-Americans. Um, yeah. We we go there, we get our, our, our hair is sacred. Uh, we <laughs> allow someone to manipulate our hair structures in the presence of others. Uh, we share thoughts about reflections of the world. They're usually unfiltered. Right. And, and the truth. The, the truth, right. And, you know, but nobody has suit and ties on and, you know, everybody is relaxed and 
it's the best place to to understand people and to address social issues. And it it is a transformation because just by sharing, sometimes you get stronger. Um, but one of the ones I remember um, the barbershop forum um, was this one was unique. And I don't know if, if Martel will ever hear this, but I'll, I'll let him know about this podcast. Um, there was a young man that was transgendered or uh, uh, I guess um, starting his process in the uh, chance to be transgendered. And we were, we had a discussion about mental health and people don't go to the therapist and why black men don't go to the therapist. And a lot of people in the, in the, were saying about child support. Child support is a big deal among the African-American men and yeah. everybody has an opinion about it. Right. And you would never think that would creep in a conversation about mental health, but it did. But this, this young man caught my eye because he was um, unusually quiet. And when I talked about, you know, what, what is therapy? What does it do? You know, it's not, you know, you just, you sit on a chair and you, 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 you pay someone 15 minutes and it's a really structured process and the importance of finding a good therapist that's able to get to know you, want to know you and the work you have to do outside of that session. And he looked at me, he said, I think you're speaking to me. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I have to do some work because before I, I came here, I was prepared to, I was prepared to kill myself. And wow. what you just shared to me about getting therapy, doing the work and healing, he said, I need some help because I, I don't know what to do. And I referred this young man. I, I, so this was a life-saving conversation. This was my point, Lawrence. Um, in a Taking place in the barbershop. Never thought, you know, um, and the issues he's dealing with with being transgendered, you know, how the family rejection ultimately was African-American, but, you know, and how he's transforming to, you know, the um, becoming a female and just the mental exhaustion <laughs> that he's going through with that was he was to the point he wanted to get a haircut, do his thing, and he was ready to prepare to end his life. And um, that moment transformed me to say, wow, you know, I never thought I would be, I do this every day formally. But in an informal situation at a barbershop, who knows those words hit someone that his life was spared. And my barber always talks about that every time he sees me. And so that's why I use those platforms to encourage our young men, older men and women, please, you know, use therapy to get help. Most of us are traumatized. Most of us carry something in our lives that you mentioned, Lawrence, that affects our walk, how we talk, how we show up, how we think. And exactly. if you're not processing that, you're not getting a chance to kind of dissect the things that make you all your psychological injuries that that are to some of you, then then you're you're going to go through life in a very uh, hurried way and maybe not the most productive. Exactly. Yeah. Representation um, is a major part of that. Right. Because after you've endured your own experiences and you can turn on the television, any channel and see thousands of negative images of African-American boys, African-American young men, African-American males. There is always something being spun. Somebody has a, has a joke at the, exp at the expense of, of the black man. Someone has, <laughs> you mentioned uh, the child support. Yeah, when a brother's <laughs> money is not, <laughs> when his money is not right, yeah, that's, that's a whole nother level of stress. 
you know, mm-hmm. if he's got to fight, you know, uh, the, you know, fight that fight. Uh, but the representation of representation of of brothers, you know, in television and media, that is something that it can shut the mind down if we don't have the positive images, if we don't have uh, the opportunities. One of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is because I get to talk with everyday brothers who live honorable lives. You know, we're not celebrities, so, you know, you're not going to see us up on the big screens, but we make a difference, you know. Right. Uh, we're examples that go against, you know, those stereotypes mm-hmm. that are being projected, uh, you know, to a young mind. If you never see a PhD graduate, if you never see your doctor as an African-American man or African-American woman, it doesn't even occur to them that they can be that thing unless we show up as the adults and say, Hey, you know, here I am. Uh, You know, I'm a young black man, just like you. And I came up in, you know, in the neighborhood, just like you, high school, Mm -hmm. college opportunity, so on and so forth. So that platform that you created uh, in the barbershop is excellent. And I've noticed that not only just uh, with the mental health, but you were also, uh, engaging in conversations about COVID vaccine. Do you, oh, yeah. <laughs> can, can we talk about that? Cause I actually, I thought that was really timely uh, yeah. because there was a lot of, there's a lot of talk, you know, in the black community, like I ain't touching it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait. Um, oh, no, go, go ahead. Uh, mm-hmm. The reference for that, if you will, that argument, of, I'm not touching it was, right. um, you know, people quoted the Tuskegee uh, experiment, syphilis experiment, uh, mm-hmm. you know, how that went down, right? Right. Uh, but then also some people had issues with the fact that the vaccine was new. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as a medical professional, um you know, mm-hmm. give us a little bit of what you've experienced and, and, and how that's playing out. Are we seeing mm-hmm. numbers increase, decrease? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Thoughts, yeah. opinions? Okay, well, just the, the pretext to this, um, in my uh, day-to-day job, um, my role is I'm the systems behavioral health uh, director for University of Maryland Capital Region Health um, Largo Medical, Medical Center. Um, so, I run all the behavioral health services in all three hospitals. I'm also the director of the infusion center. So you can imagine when I come home, Lawrence, um, I'm usually ready and I'm in, I'm a doctoral student as well. So I'm like, I'm ready to go home, get my homework done. But I know, and you know that there exists a need to educate people about something that I saw last year that was my second transformation. If the first transformation of me was seeing you know myself when I was in a bad state and nearly attempted suicide. My second transformational self occurred when I saw COVID-19 at the hospital level. And I can tell you, Lawrence, what I saw was nothing I hope I never see again. Seeing people come into an emergency room with a simple cough and a fever and not leave again and die within hours seeing people get uh, young people asking that they wanted to live, to, 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 to breathe and not being able to breathe because we can't 
you know, once the disease state really caught in, these people um, died. I saw hundreds of people experience this last year, and it almost felt like last year was this prison of pain that it just wouldn't stop. We were locked into every day what's happening next. And so that reflection in my own trauma of seeing that as a healthcare professional, as a healthcare administrator, seeing my own staff um, getting infected and being powerless to stop this thing called COVID-19 um, drove me from my uniform from work to the barbershop in DC. Barbershop was called D's Barbershop. I'm a member of the NAACP. Um, our platform in the NAACP is to use um, health advocacy and education to transform a nation. So here I, I arrived yesterday at five o'clock, this barbershop. And the first barbershop forum I did on COVID hesitancy went very well. I mean, I went through the science of COVID-19, Lawrence. I talked about, you know, how it arrived from Wuhan a province in China in um, December. Um, it spread, population spread somewhere between March and a uh, April of uh, 2021, sorry, of 2020 a massive um, uh, influx of COVID-19 infections. And you could just see it just kind of move across the wave. We talked about that and it went well. Mm -hmm. This barbershop presentation, however, it was the real deal. Uh, I had a sister in there. I appreciate her. She had a baby on her hip. <laughs> <laughs> and she, I'm just going to repeat what she said. No offense. She said, I'm ready for it for your ass. <laughs> <laughs> she and said, bring it. <laughs> said, oh my God. <laughs> and then the brother came in there. He had his dreads on. He was drinking his, I'm sorry, his locks. And he was drinking his juice. And he said, I got something for you. <laughs> wow. So I was like, I'm not here to fight, but you know, if you if you want that. Uh, I'm I'm up for the challenge. So right. Uh, <laughs> so let me ask this: Is the information being received? Like when you give the data, the statistics, you know, the science behind the vaccine, was it received in in that setting? Yes. Okay. Um, all things have to be seasoned with understanding where people are where their fears are anchored and being empathic to their own journey and accepting the COVID-19. It's not just Kent Alford going in there with the NWCV vice president and trying to make them all believers in one um, setting. You might have to chip away at the miseducation and the distrust yeah. that they have to, um, because we have had bad experiences with um, government uh, with some things and everybody talks about right. that thing and it was horrific and I don't really know if the government the folks who did this thing know how much of an impact it has had on our community at large um, yeah. and that's almost like therapy you have to kind of stay in it you can't ignore it in the conversation and say look you know that was back in 1940 you have to wallow in that moment it was really, really bad what they did to us. Yeah. It was really well, you know, we bad. get a lot of that phrase, uh, you know, are y'all still on that? 
get over it. <laughs> right, right. Nah. It's like let me, let me, let me, let me, let me talk to you a minute because right. you know, as African Americans, there's just so much to get over. You, right. you, you and and you can't get over it because in the back right. of your head, you know. And I'm going to say this: as much as I know about the science in the New England Journal of Medicine, and the 35,000 people who first took the um, first sample for the vaccine, you still think about that. The what so, is, and, and you can't discount that. You right. have to acknowledge it. It's all and, a part of the conversation, right? Right. right, it has to and, be had. You have to have space for the the naysayers and the the right. would bees and the well, I don't knows. Uh, right, yeah. One of my favorite uh, responses to COVID nineteen uh, when it first hit was, "It's not real." Right, it's like, right. ah, it's not real. But you know, I was tracking at the time. I was uh, writing for the newspaper at, at, at the university, Fayetteville State University. Shout out to the Broncos. Right. Um, and this thing is still, it's still taking lives. I mean, we are looking at up oh, yeah. of 34 million cases in the United States. Oh, yeah. And I think our death toll is somewhere around Six, 600. 600,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a lot of people. It's not real. <laughs> you know, uh, nothing yeah. nothing gets more real than 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 thirty four, you know, million, million six hundred over six hundred something odd deaths. It's, a lot of uh, it's definitely a decision to mm-hmm. to be made. Uh, I was vaccinated, and mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. I felt like I hit the lottery when I got the phone call. <laughs> you know that veterans could come in and get it because I was about to you know return to work, and mm-hmm. I was like I want to get this vaccine done. And my thought was this, I have been vaccinated with so many things in the military. I was like, well, you know, shoot me up, <laughs> you know, right. point me right. in the direction of the vaccine because I, I'm a, I'm, I want to breathe, you right. know, I just was not in the mood to spend 10 to 12 days of struggling to breathe. I, I could not imagine, you mm-hmm. know what that feels like, you know, on top yeah. of the aches and the, you know, the body right. chills and the sweats and all the other symptoms that came along with it. I right. was like, no, I'm good. <laughs> I'm going I'm to I'm stay socially distant and uh, holler at me when you get the vaccine, you know. So, exactly. It, yeah. you, but, you know, it's, it's it, you know, I, maybe one day I'm going to take you, take you with me, Lawrence, one of these um, uh, barbershop forums because the one thing that that connected with them, these folks were not interested in my degrees. They weren't interested in my, you know, whatever I do for a living, which is wasn't I wasn't there for that anyway. Um, they they wanted to hear the personal stories, mm-hmm. and that's where I related to them. What you just said, yeah. I saw people who were fighting to breathe. I saw people. In the coming in an emergency room, Lawrence, people who you'd never think would be dying. That would be their last ride. And they were fighting and the disease hit them so hard, so quickly. And I said, if if on the other side of that is a vaccine that will keep that from happening to me, then I'll take my chances. Yeah. And I got this. And I'm still here today. That was the most compelling part 
of the story. They didn't want to hear about the vaccine, how the it was science, developed. right? Oh no! And I, I the mRNA. Like <laughs> <laughs> what? Messaging, messaging RNA and recombinant, you know, technology. They don't want to hear that. Yeah. So I told them what it was like for the twenty-seven-year-old that came in, that had that lost his sense of smell and taste, that had developed a cough, and suspicious he had COVID, and had been in his house for like two weeks. And then we tested him, and then literally three hours later, um, his he's de- his oxygen levels are plummeting. Um, his body is experiencing something that we now know probably the blood clots coming into his lungs. Mm-hmm. Um, that pneumonia now becoming fatal. His immune system is in overdrive, and this person is now asking for oxygen. Given oxygen, it's not taking. Then being put on a ventilator. And then being in that ventilator and then having to make choices and then his oxygen level still not um, coming back to par and then having his heart and other body organs stop because he's in respiratory failure. Yeah. And that happened in a, in a period of two or three hours. That is unlike anything. If I could paint that picture, no one wants to go through that. And nobody came in those hospitals to, to die. And that's why this vaccine is so important to understand. It gives you, a, it, it allows you to have some control back to a virus for which we had no control last year. Right. Yeah. And I mean, let's just be real. 2020 was a whole situation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if you had to, uh, if you had to Thanos snap this situation <laughs> like that would absolutely be the place i would go back to uh because i think we all could be okay you know <laughs> without having experienced yeah. covid-19 uh pandemic but i wanted to uh, mm-hmm. to bring this up to you and transition from that topic sure. um because i understand that you have uh well you may have some personal uh uh connection to this next piece that I'm about to talk to, uh, I've sure. been doing some traveling during my summer, and mm-hmm. I just got back from Selma, Alabama. Oh, really? Now? And <laughs> yes, I know, right? If, if you've not been to Selma, uh, if you are interested in taking a look at some of the history associated with African Americans and voting, uh, inequalities and and, and injustices, lynching. Um, Selma, Alabama is a place that will give you an eye full. One of the names that I saw there in one of the placards was uh, John Lewis. And I understand that John Lewis was a Greek, correct? Yes. John Lewis is actually a Sigma. He's a Sigma. And you are also a, a part of the same organization, <laughs> and so yes, I, I, I wanted to to, to ask you: uh, Have you had the the uh, opportunity to meet him uh, in yes. your in your? In, what was that like? It was a spiritual moment for me. Um, I've t- I've taken his pictures throughout the years, but I've actually been close to him. Um, so he was a member of my um, chapter. Um, I'm with Tri Sigma, um, Phi Beta Sigma Incorporated, um, 
Washington, D.C. And uh, John Lewis is actually a member of, of the Tri Sigma um, chapter. So very close conversations with him um, and the brothers who um, our chapter president at the time, Jacob Ellison, um, actually was his caregiver at the end and shared um, a wonderful, uh, I guess, discussion about him talking about all of this. So mm-hmm. to answer your question, very intimate um, details, discussions, and, and um, had a chance to take pictures and really be in his presence several times. Yeah, uh, I saw that there is a petition uh, in circulation for the Edmund uh, Pettus Bridge to be renamed. Have you seen that? I have, um, and I I did I did see that petition. Um, I I I do think um, that will probably occur because the passion around that is um, you know what it is. This man yeah. walked that that space. Uh, was brutalized by supremacists, mm-hmm. and um, it defined the moment. It allowed America at that moment in time in history to see how horrific and how dirty and how nasty racism was, and it opened the eyes to a generation for which we're still fighting today. Right. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, as I was there, um, <clears throat> I was literally on the bridge. Uh, I was a block away from the bridge. I photographed. I read the the monuments that are standing there. Um, It gives you a different perspective. I definitely appreciate being a Black man in the time that I am born, that I'm living right now. Mm. Um, When I read, or when I was reading uh, the details of some of the things that led up to that March 7th, 1965 event, which uh, John Lewis was present for, uh, I am floored, you know, like I just stood there like, you know, in my skin, like, wow, I can't imagine that much hatred supported by law, (laughs) you know, (laughs) existing. Like we have a very different experience you know in this 21st mm-hmm. century uh and yet we still have some very real similarities mm-hmm. um you know there are still confederate flags at graves mm-hmm. you know people who lived in the 1800s in the early 1900s but someone is still keeping a confederate flag in place you know Mm-hmm. Uh, or that, you know what I'm saying? To, it, it basically says, you know, we still celebrate this. Uh, you know, this is very much, you know, alive mm-hmm. and well, you know, these issues of of race, you know, in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. And we will probably always have space, you know, mm-hmm. for someone to, you know, to, 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 to bring that, that level of race and racism you know, to 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 the to the to the main stage, if you will. Right. But yeah, I thought I was like, man, you know, uh, I remember hearing the phrase "good trouble" associated yes. with oh, <laughs> with John well, Lewis. <laughs> oh, I, I can I hear him saying it now because he always would say, you know, you, you need to get yourself into some good trouble today. And I, you know, this is this is the reason why I'm a member of the NAACP, not because just because of John Lewis, obviously, 
but he had a tremendous influence on me in terms of me not getting comfortable, Lawrence, with just being, you know, educated and employed. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a whole generation that allowed me to be where I am and you and the platforms of which we have as well. And Indeed. how do we take that talent and not bury it? How do we take it and make it so that other people have continued access and greater access? That's that's the challenge. And um, and role models like these guys, icons, help us to define our walk. Yeah. Yeah, I never I didn't I did not know his connections with with some of our our history uh, yeah. in the way that I saw uh, there. There's a nice monument just off of the bridge there, uh, the uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge, with his likeness engraved on one of those stones. Oh wow! I was like, I was like wow! Yeah, it's. It's yeah. an it's a, it's an awesome sight to see, and, and everything in an old Selma from the '60s still is there. Like that that main strip still looks like, you know, the images we've seen photographed, oh, really? you know, from the from 1965. Wow. Yeah, it's a historical district now. That main drive, mm-hmm. Highway Highway 80, that oh, is wow. 54 miles of road mm. to be marched, you know, for the right to vote. Wow. That's what that was about. 54 miles, 87.8, mm. I think, kilometers is what I is what I read. Uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. The things that 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 our people endured, you know, so we could have some of these rights uh, mm-hmm. now. Um, so I, I mentioned earlier, I'm going to take you back, uh, that you were one of the busiest brothers I know. So <laughs> and we talked about the many hats. So I, I, I want to recap that because um I know that you're, well, I'm going to let you do it, right? So just give us the hat, starting with (laughs) professionally, you are. Sure. Sure. What hat is that? Okay, man, I'll I'll, I'll try that. I'll attempt. I'll make an attempt. (laughs) Let's run it down for us. Run it down. Okay. All right. Uh, Well, so so my day job, um, I'm I'm I'm, my bachelor's degree is in nursing, um, have a master's also in nursing. Um, I'm a trained, um, trained as an RN registered nurse. Um, and I'm also trained as a nurse practitioner, family nurse practitioner. I'm actually in school now. I'm working on my, uh, uh DNP is a doctor nursing practice and, uh, we'll be delivering that, uh, somewhere soon, uh, hands up, hopes up, and, um, we'll be able to practice at another level. I've been a nurse for over 25 years, I think. Um, and um, I have been a psychiatric board certified psychiatric nurse um, and been blessed to be uh, was a, a leader in nursing very early in my career, probably like in my late, late 20s. I uh, got my first leadership position and continued to move up the uh, corporate chain, um, became a di- manager first, uh, assistant director, then director, then chief nursing officer, and now being a systems director. Um, being in charge of um, a system of behavioral health services. Um, I have, um, so that's my day job, behavioral health uh, director, registered nurse. Uh, my roles um, include, I'm also the, the behavioral health co-chair for um, the Prince Prince George's uh, community. Uh, we have what we call our BHAG, behavioral health uh, 
Behavioral Health Alliance. And as the co-chair of that, we set the tone for behavioral health services in the county. Um, I sit on the board of ANAMI, uh, the National Alliance for Mental Illness. As a board member, um, of course, that has a more national ring to it. I, I actually am in the part of the DC board members and um, I do that. I've been doing that for several years. Um, I'm also sitting on a lot of professional boards for behavioral health, um, Psych Stick Psych U, which is a, a pretty interesting one. This board, we talk about destigmatizing mental illness. Um, when you talk about when people say I'm mentally sick or mentally ill, um, that's a harder hit in African American communities because we still, in African communities, it's really a hard hit. So how do we get those messages out? How do we offer resources and how do we continue to be a beacon of support? And that's a really uh, board, uh, board I think is operational and functional for me. Um, I'm also a member of the 100 Black Men of Prince George's County. Um, most, if any of you know, 100 Black Men of America uh, is a national organization for which we mentor young people. Um, and that, um, I'm the, I sit as the, the membership of the chairman membership. So my job is to help with um, members, new members coming in, getting them oriented and kind of getting them um, situated to become a 100 Black man. They do tremendous work, uh, Lawrence, in the African-American community across the nation. Um, and I'm very honored to be part of that wonderful organization. Um, Phi Beta Sigma Incorporated, as you mentioned, uh, that's that's my fraternity. We also do a tremendous work with the community, giving service uh, to all. And then um, I think after that, the NAACP, I can't forget about that. I'm the chair of Behavioral Health uh, Services for the DC chapter. Um, that role, you'll see me with my NAACP shirt on at barbershops, beauty salons, um, this last year, Lawrence, I participated in the big uh, march against um, voting and uh, inequality, hands up, don't don't shoot, where we got on the ground for eight minutes and we experienced what eight minutes felt like for George Floyd uh, when he um, was in his moment of, uh, of, of dying and being killed by a police officer. Mm -hmm. um, the NAACP keeps me anchored to my black roots and my, and my struggle as a black man and how that universal struggle is one, it's, it's humbling. It keeps me focused on being able to be a beacon of hope for others and not allow me to get so far up in the clouds that I don't forget what it's like for the everyday person that has to deal with our racist um, society. So those are just some of the things I do, Lawrence. Hope I didn't probably add them all, but I think that's a pretty decent summary. Yeah, brother. Like I say, man, you are definitely a man of many hats. Um, so I really want to take an, a, a, another opportunity, rather, to say this again. Thank you uh, for sitting down with us and just sharing a bit of your narrative. Um, if people knew, right, like if people just knew all the things that you got done uh, in, a, in, a, in a day, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm surprised that we were able to carve out this time, uh, uh, you know, at this moment to 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 have this conversation. But thank you so much uh, for joining us, uh, and we hope that we've uh, you know shared some information that can you know help someone else you know stir in a different direction or continue on uh, in the path you know that that they're traveling. 
uh, towards success. Um, right. This is not something that we get a chance to to hear and see on the main in the mainstream. So I, I really appreciate every time uh, we get a new um, interview set up and somebody to sit down with us and just share their narrative. Like brothers are out here and we are we are doing great things. So thank you again. And this is uh, Kent Alfred. And uh, have a good one. Thank you. Thank you, Lawrence, for the opportunity. Once again, it's been another great show. I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen. And to all of you who email, write, and message us, keep them coming. A very special thank you to you. And if you'd like to share your narrative, visit our website www.onbeingablackman.com or email us on beingablackman at gmail.com.